Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. This is 491 Asia Tech Podcast by Graham Brown. That's me. We're going to talk about podcasting and Asia and traditional media. And to do that, we're going to take a look outside of the region. And I want to share with you one of the best case studies of podcasting in the world. And it comes from not necessarily the world of podcasts, but traditional media, believe it or not. We're going to have a look at NPR. And this relates to an article I published on LinkedIn this week, which is titled NPR National Public Radio. That is NPR is crushing podcasting in the US right now. Here's why. So a bit of data to NPR. NPR is a non-profit radio network in the US. The nearest equivalent is BBC in the UK, but BBC is a far more commercial entity than NPR. It's a radio network, but it's recently pivoted towards podcasts. So it has all this content, this amazingly produced content in some instances, and it's taken it to podcasting. And it's had a very interesting impact on NPR's business. And that's what I want to talk about today because there are many media owners out there in the world who are looking for new real estate, who are looking for advertising real estate that is not owned by Facebook and Google. Because here's the problem. If I was a newspaper or a magazine, or a radio, how do I convince a brand to advertise with me when it's very straightforward for them to go to Facebook or Google and just buy paid ads with them? And that doesn't stack up. And that's difficult for me when you look at the numbers. If I was in the US and I was a magazine, I'm faced with the challenge of 59% of the ad market online is owned by Facebook or Google. I don't get a look in. Yet I have all this amazing content. What do I do with it? So let's look at NPR today because the NPR case study is really a blueprint for traditional media companies worldwide. This is not just a US thing. As is the case with media, US is about four to five years ahead of Asia. So my hypothesis, if you like, is that What's happening with NPR in the US will happen here in Asia in time. And it will happen to the traditional media owners who get it, who get in there fast before Facebook and Google get in there. And if you listen to Asia Tech Podcast 490, which was really about Asia as a market for podcasting, the pitch really was, if you wait for the advertising metrics to be worked out, It's already too late. Facebook and Google will already own the market. They are the ones that will plow millions into getting the ad metrics right. And that is going to happen. And by that point, we will see a repetition of what happened in the online space, which is that before the ad metrics got worked out, All the advertisers, effectively the media owners, adopted a wait-and-see attitude. And that played to the more uh, risk-aware, I suppose, or the more the riskier 
internet companies to get into that space. So we're seeing a repeat now with podcasts. And the point is, is that I think NPR will happen here in the same form for traditional media companies in Asia. So those traditional media companies could be media conglomerates. They could be radio stations. They could be magazines, newspapers who really haven't had a look in and are struggling to work out what their business model is in this age of content, paid firewalls or paid content walls, firewalls, whatever you call them, where what's happening is you're seeing newspapers charging for content. Then they stop charging for content. Now they're charging for content again and they're trying to make it work. Now people are used to seeing this stuff free online why on earth am I going to pay for it? So that's the challenge, consumer expectations. Yet, what NPR has done is basically, rather than just repeat, reformat radio content for podcasts, it's an adopted and omnichannel approach to podcasting, to effectively what is storytelling. So taking a story, great content, and repurposing that on many channels. So taking a great piece, an opinion piece or a story told on NPR and then pushing that out to radio and podcasting and using podcasts maybe to go a bit deeper into the story itself, the story behind the story in some cases. And what that does is, is have a profound impact on both the audience figures in traditional media, and I'll talk about the numbers in a minute, and also if you were to use that space to advertise, then you will have all this extra real estate. Now, the argument thus far has been that, well, if we do a podcast, effectively, that is cannibalizing our existing real estate. We are a radio station. We produce content on radio. If we were to do a podcast, it basically means our listeners will go from radio to the podcast and they won't come back. That has been proven wrong by NPR. And it's not just proven wrong, they've actually proven the opposite is true. And this, to me, is the fantastic opportunity for traditional media. It's not just a case of taking podcasts on board because you're now taking your stories to where the eyeballs are or the earballs, the audience are. Effectively, what you're doing is something very interesting. This omni-channel approach means that by being on radio and by being on podcasts, and radio obviously can be replaced by newspapers, etc., you're now in a situation where one and one equals three. Let me explain. So NPR is your traditional radio network. And if you look at the numbers, and this is available in my report Podcasting 2020, a playbook for Asia, which you can get free from my website. If you go to atp.show slash report, you can get all this data free. Go and download it and let me know what you think. Hit me up at graham at pitch.sg, which is my podcast media house email address. So look at the case study for NPR, which you'll find sort of in the, the back end of the report, roundabout slide 55. What's happening with NPR is let's look at the podcast publisher data first, which ranks in the US the top publishers by volume of their audience in millions, unique monthly audience every month. 
19.39. So let's say it's 19 million, just short of 20 million people listen to NPR on the podcast every month. Now, how does that compare to radio? Go back to radio. If you look at where NPR started out, so go back to 2014, like five years ago, the average unique weekly users of NPR in 2014 was around about 2 million. Now, even if, and it's an extraordinary case, which is unreal, but all of those listeners were unique every week. So let's say 2 million listen every week, and therefore your monthly listenership is around about 8.3 million. That's unlikely. It's more likely to be 2 million makes to three and a half to four million a month. What you have is a situation where NPR's podcast is five times more popular than its radio. What does that mean? It means that, well, it's not replacing radio because radio didn't start out from a position of 20 million monthly listeners for NPR. Something else is happening. What's happening is, is people are discovering podcasts and they're discovering NPR on the podcast and they're getting into them. And then now this is the interesting part. The listeners are going back from podcasting to traditional radio. This is exciting. And the numbers show this to be the case. So you've got 20 million people listening to NPR. And what's happening now is the audience of NPR on weekly users on radio itself has grown from 2 million to 5.4 million. Now, I would argue there are very few radio stations in the world that have grown by, what, nearly 300% in the last five years. Maybe the radio station that grew from zero, yes, it's possible. But for one that had 2 million already, as an audience, a baseline growing to five and a half million. It's phenomenal. Now, you can speculate as to one of the reasons being that people were just getting more into the radio station. It's unlikely. Podcasts have driven people, a new audience, to radio. And NPR is the main beneficiary of this. So let's have a look at NPR. What are they doing right? What is NPR doing right on podcasts that other podcasters can learn from and other media players can learn from? Because this says to me, if I was a media company now and I owned a magazine, a radio station, a newspaper, any type of traditional media, even TV, I've now got to look at my podcast, not just as extra real estate for advertising, but also as a very effective discovery tool for my business. In the same way, YouTube is a great discovery tool for music. Now, nobody would have thought in the early days that people would be discovering music on YouTube. But if you look at the top five most popular videos on YouTube, they are all music videos. The ones that get into the billions of views are all music videos. And anybody that knows the sort of teenage generation and how they consume music, and I think of my son who's 13 years old, when he discovers music, it happens on YouTube 
he listens to it, he gets used to it, and then he becomes a fan. So YouTube is a phenomenal discovery tool for music, yet for the music industry, it's not a major revenue generator. Most of the money comes from live performances or these 360 contracts with artists. And even for the artist, the money's really coming from live performances, gigs, merchandising, and so on, sponsorship. Yeah, without YouTube, it probably wouldn't be possible because there are no really effective discovery tools out there for music. Before YouTube, we had Napster, and obviously we know what happened to that. And before Napster, we had radio, where people aren't using radio for discovery anymore. They're going to these platforms that have a really good algorithm to help you discover stuff. So if you think about it, if I want to discover content, my options really are YouTube or now increasingly Spotify over Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Or, you know, I may go into social media, but ultimately that's going to drive me back to a YouTube or an audio platform like Spotify. So these companies are very good at serving up content that's relevant to you, which is not the case for radio. So if we look at these platforms as major discovery platforms driving traffic to traditional media, then the question is, is why isn't traditional media using more of this? Because the NPR case study speaks volumes as to how this works. In the same way, YouTube speaks volumes for how the music industry and artists in particular need to get discovered beyond the traditional format that people discovered that content through, whether it was radio or whether it was even TV in the old days. So now we're going to look at NPR National Public Radio and look at what they're doing right. And I think to do this, we need to really look at some of their shows. And it's listed in my article on LinkedIn. And you can find me on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash in slash Graham D. Brown. And you'll see my articles there. Some of the shows that NPR has really highlight what is popular in podcasting right now. And let me reveal to you the numbers and how this breaks down. So they have, I think maybe not just all their popular shows, but let's talk about the shows that work are just interesting. So I'm going to pick three or four shows and talk about those. So they have Up First, which is a daily news and politics podcast in 15 minutes. They do three stories and cover them in 15 minutes. And this is a better version of the news for a lot of people because A, it's in 15 minutes and B, it's a lot more engaging. Now, if I go to traditional news, it's delivered in a lecture format rather than discussion. And where it is delivered in discussion, the the depth of the discussion is, well, how should I put it, is dubious. I mean, if you think, for example, like those people that sit on the Fox News couch and talk about the the uh, the goings on of the day. You know, th- these aren't the most intelligent analysts out there in the world. They're not the most engaging, and they're delivering really a company line on what is acceptable. There isn't much engagement, and it's ironic that that a lot of younger people now go to comedy to get their news. So, if people want opinion, if people want 
to know what's going on in the news, they're more likely to go to the Daily Show or to John Oliver and the Tonight Show, these sort of formats which are served up as comedy, which really are news and analysis. They're more likely to go there because they're delivered in a more human manner and nothing is more human than comedy. So if you look at that meta trend, is for years we had news programs and the news that came on at nine o'clock at night or 10 o'clock or now in constant rotation. People don't look at the news for analysis to understand there's so much information out there now that people want a filter. They want us to, un you know, okay, yes, I understand there's a lot going on in the world, but help me understand what's meaningful to me. So they want a filter. So that is why filter programs like the Tonight Show or Today's Show or even like in the early days, like the Young Turks, for example, or even, you know, on, on the other side of the spectrum, you have some of the more of the right-wing analysts like Rush Limbaugh's, for example. Now, they exist because people want opinion. They People want analysis. They want the conversation. They want the human angle. And that doesn't come through in traditional news stories. So where Up First delivers for NPR is a similar kind of approach, is that we're not going to just report, we're going to analyze, and we're going to talk through this stuff. And that's what people want. And I think it's a more of a, a deeper insight into what podcasting really offers. It's not about just telling people how it is. So I find one of the, the shortcomings of many podcasts out there is Q&A, i.e., they just interview people. And the worst thing being is like, send me the questions beforehand. That's absolute BS. Because if I want to get the Q&A, if I want to just get the information, I'll just go to your website or I'll go to the conference and hear the panel session. And generally, nine out of 10 times, people are bored by panel sessions. Yet, if I want to understand you, if I want to understand your real message, the authentic message and what it means to me, I want to see you in the real environment of how you roll and how you speak and how you talk. And I want to know more about you. And then I'll make my mind up about whether or not I believe you. It's the old sales adage, people buy from people first. You know, you may have a great product, but if, if you don't like me, you're never going to buy it from me. So what really conveys the message is not necessarily the content, but the person. And that's why I feel that NPR in many ways is getting it right. That, and it's less about what they talk about, more about who talks about it and how they deliver that. And Up First does that well. I'll come to the last in the selection in a minute, which really I feel is the strongest case study of all podcasts and where the bar is set and where we've got to head to when it comes to podcasts. And if you're looking for content, this is a great example coming up. But also if you're producing the content, stop interviewing people, stop sending questions, break out of that, capture the stories, the real human element. Don't be the McDonald's of the podcast world be the starbucks they produce more or less the same content there's both fast food 
yet one is packaged in a very human way and one is packaged like a machine. Don't be McDonald's. And even though it's a very successful business, who on earth wants to work there? You know, it's always talked about in the pejorative when we think about careers. Other podcasts from NPR, White Lies, which is a true crime podcast, in, in particular, specific uh, case, the murder of a, uh, a reverend in Alabama in 1965. So a civil rights related podcast. Interestingly, if you look at what's popular in podcasting now, to contrary, sorry, to contradict the people, the negs out there, and there are lots of them, and it's not you guys because you're listening to this and you're already over the 20 minute mark, so well done you. But there are plenty of people out there who say, oh, I don't have time to listen to podcasts. I only have five minutes. It's absolute nonsense. It's like people don't have time for what they don't have time for. That's the problem. People don't have time for podcasts because they don't understand what podcasts are about. And then people are serving up for that market. So what's happening is there's this sort of vicious negative cycle, which is on the one hand, people say they're too busy for podcasts because they don't see the reason and the value of spending five minutes on listening to somebody. And then on the same, you know, on the other hand, what's happening is those who are without a strong North star as to what podcasts are about are listening and being guided by influenced by the negs and therefore serving up the short form content, which only compounds the negativity. Because if you're going to serve up a five minute podcast, you might as well just go to the website. Yeah. If you look at the true crimes podcast and there are history podcasts out there, and even going back to one of my favorites, Joe Rogan, these podcasts are measured in hours, not minutes. So we're talking podcasts that last from three to six hours. And you may ask, I don't have time. What are people doing with their lives that they're spending three to six hours watching, listening to content? Well, Netflix knows a few things about how we consume our content. And they were one of the first platforms to start offering content in seasons. And you're now starting to see podcasters offering their 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 content in seasons as well. And it makes complete sense because basically what's happening is, is people aren't just consuming five minutes of content. If I like five minutes of content, I'm going to listen to more. And that's why Netflix understands if you may listen to one show, watch one TV show, you may also listen to six or 12. So they're serving up this bloody great big season of content, which people are binge watching on. And it's a phenomenon and it's real. And it's the same with podcasts. When people are into something, they're really into something. You may argue people don't have time to play esports or games. People don't have time. You could argue, I don't have time to sit down and eat dinner. I don't have sit time to sit down and drink a coffee. I don't have time to sit with my friends and talk. Yet people do. And that is what we value most. What we don't have time for is stuff we don't understand the value of. And the value of podcasting is not giving people sound bites because there is no value in that. The value is better served on other platforms that are gamed, algorithmed to do that well. Like, for example, the internet, Google, 
yeah, if I'm listening to content and I'm listening to a podcast, I want to go deep. So that is why true crime podcasts like White Lies are popular. Same with history podcasts. Um, Planet Money is another example, which in the same vein as Up First, it breaks down and analyzes very dry subjects like money, financial education, and so on, the economy. So those are three examples of what NPR is doing right. I want to talk now about This American Life. Now, This American Life, I believe, is the gold standard of podcasts. It started as a radio show, and the uh, the host, Ira Glass, um, started by just talking to normal American people and documenting their lives. So you could have a farmer out in the Midwest talking about farming soya bean, which to many people you might think is a pretty dry subject and pretty boring. Yet I find this stuff really interesting. And I think the listeners of This American Life do as well. It gets two and a half million listeners every week. And I think about five million a month. So that's pretty um, hardcore as a podcast in an audience. And they're listening to very normal people talk about very normal things. But in fact, the more you get into it, the more you realize that the normality, the, no- the mundane aspect of people's lives told a story can actually be extraordinary and very engaging. So recently they they published a an episode about car sales. The car they, they they talked to car dealers and it was really fascinating because you know here's a here's a career being a car salesman again talked about in the pejorative talked about in negative terms yet behind each one of those car salesmen saleswoman is a story it's a story of hopes and fears that we all experience. And if somebody is struggling to sell that car, to meet their targets, to feed their family, to, you know, for want of a better life, you know what happens is, is suddenly that humanizes their personal brand. You know, that brand being something which was seen as plastic, untrustworthy, unapproachable, salesy, which in many ways, brands of all stripes are and are perceived. You know, the, the way that they come across in these episodes is very human. This documentary about them is a movie told in sound about normal people. And it leaves you with a very interesting feeling. It's like a song. You know, when you listen to a song, it's often about very mundane things. It's about boy meets girl, as most movies are. And obviously, there are other songs which maybe take on more political times. But, you know, songs are either happy, they're, they're sad, but they're never in the middle. You know, a political song may make you feel inspired or it may make you feel angry, but it always conjures an emotion. And I believe it was Maya Angelou who said that people will always forget what you told them, but they will always remember how you made them feel. 
And it's the logic-emotion dynamic that drives all human connection. And if you're in sales, you know this. People buy on emotion and justify with logic. Emotion is what connects us. It connects us at a fundamental human level. So these stories told in This American Life are in many ways emotional for many different dimensions. Like they could be sad, happy, angry, uplifting, but they're never indifferent. They're never leaving you feeling empty. And that's what people want. People want connection in the same way that people want to feel part of something and connect with humanity. So you go to Starbucks because you want to feel part of a community rather than you want to consume coffee. That's the emotion and the logic. You buy on emotion and justify with logic. So if I was to ask you, hey, why did you go to Starbucks just now? You would say, I wanted some coffee. That's logic. The emotional reason why you actually went there is because you wanted to feel like you belong somewhere. You wanted to feel a part of something. And in many ways, this American life does that. It leaves you with that feeling, a connection with people. And that is really the most fundamental driver of all our interactions. We want to connect. And it's the reason why Facebook exists, why one of the most valuable companies in the world exists, because we want to belong. We want to connect with other people. And it's not just Facebook. Social media is not just about Facebook. Beyond social media is the human connectivity, the emotional connection with people. And This American Life really is about that. Some of the stories that they share really are about emotional connection. And if you listen to how This American Life is recorded, it gives you an insight into what I feel is the future of podcasting. So it's often classed as non-fiction journalism. So very mundane documentaries. You know, there's some great documentary journalism out there, which is more hyperbole, more extreme, more unbelievable. And that's what we talk about. For example, a lot of the Vice documentaries, which I think are quite amazing, um, done on YouTube. I, they've obviously, you know, the skill of the documentary and the documentary producers and the hosts are second to none. And uh, but you talk about them, and you, hey, did you see that documentary on Vice? Check it out. And it gets people talking because it is so extreme. Whether it is warlords in Liberia or the guy who faked his way to the Milan catwalk, these are great stories. Yeah, what This American Life does is take the other end of the spectrum, which is it's still non-fiction journalism, but rather than the hyperbole or the extreme, it's very normal. And that's what we want. We want both. We want the normality in our lives. And the way that they, they, they tell that story really gives us a playbook for how to tell stories and how to conduct non non-fiction storytelling. And one of the key characteristics of this American life is they use scenes. And we've started recording our podcasts in scenes, taking a leaf out of their playbook. Because, you know, why reinvent the wheel? It works. Now, most podcasts are recorded 
as a one scene, effectively. And there are a number of reasons for that. It could be, for example, that you're just sitting with a a guest and you're recording the interview with them and it's just one scene. Nobody's ever thought about doing that as multiple scenes. Yet when we do our podcast and we're doing a series for Zero, the beautiful business software company, go and check it out. It's uh, listenable on our website. If you go and check out uh, pitch.sg, that's pitch.sg, SG for Singapore. You'll go and find out who our client podcasts are and you can go and see the zero example. And in that one, we record those conversations with zero with three scenes often. And the the, the beginning, the middle and the end of the story. And I think that's the way you, you got to tell a story is that, you know, we want to connect with people through story and most stories have that sort of dynamic beginning, middle, and the end. And even though they're not told in a a longitudinal or chronological order, like sometimes if you watch a movie, the opening scene is actually the middle. And then it's, you know, it's the dead body on the floor with the, the weapon next to it. And then somebody running off. Then the narrative says, well, how did we get to this point? So you go from the, the middle to the beginning to the end. And you can tell a podcast like that as well. You can tell that story with your guest in that format. You don't have to have three different locations, but it helps. So one of the new formats that we're working on at Pitch is Sounds of Our City. That's soundsofourcity.com, where we want to take this This American Life format and apply it to Asia with a slightly different twist. This American Life has been going now for 20 years on radio, twenty, nearly 25 years. So it's taken a long time to build up that audience. Yet what we've learned is that they will record scenes in different locations. And I absolutely love that format. So they will record a scene in a diner. American diner with all the diner sounds in the background. So the sounds of the waitress and the sounds of the clanking and the clinking of the cutlery and the sounds of the coffee machine and so on. Because really, again, it comes back to emotion. You're painting a soundscape, as I call it. It's a visual, a 3D audio soundscape in somebody's mind. So if I'm listening to this, I'm listening in my earphones. And I'm thinking about how does this sound? Am I there? Am I sitting with these people in this conversation taking part? I feel I'm part of this. And that is the impact that you want in a series to create that soundscape and make that listener feel they're part of that conversation with you. Because if they feel the part of the conversation, we've delivered on our promise to create connection. If I don't feel I'm part of this, then I don't feel connection. I don't feel any emotion. I feel hollow. I can't connect. You haven't given me any cues. You haven't told me anything about the background. I don't feel anything in the story of the the scene where I am. So as an example, yesterday we recorded a scene in a near jungle setting in the middle of Singapore. I wouldn't call it a jungle because no, you're not going to get lost in there. It's just semi-rainforest setting in the middle of Singapore Polytechnic, believe it or not, set out the back of Singapore Poly. And out there, 
there is a wooded area which looks a little bit like a jungle with the undergrowth and so on. And we went out there and recorded a scene at the request of our guest. And I won't give away too much, but part of Sounds of Our City is we asked the guest to take us to memorable places, scenes from their story to help tell the story of the city. So in this case, we had two who were co-founders of a business and they took us to this place, which is this near jungle setting. So you can imagine being in this setting in the middle of a city, what kind of sounds are you going to hear? You're going to hear like the cicadas chirping in the background. You're going to hear the birds singing. You're going to hear all those sort of sounds of nature around you. And then we, so myself and the guests are walking we're walking through this setting and then we're walking up these steps and they're describing a scene to us that happened in real, in their life, a pivotal moment in their journey as they're walking up these steps and they were carrying this stuff. I can't tell you what the stuff is. You've got to go and listen to it. And actually it's quite funny. It's not what you think. They were carrying 30 kilos of this stuff up these stairs and they had to take it to the top of this hill. And so the whole journey was getting this stuff up to the top of the hill and in this sort of jungle type setting. They're getting eaten by mosquitoes. And when I was recording it, I was getting eaten by mosquitoes as well. But that's all part of that soundscape, that 3D scene you're recreating for the listener. So hopefully when you listen to it, you feel a little bit that you're there as well. You're standing there with us in this scene and it'll be unique, your image of the scene in your head, that picture in your mind your mind's eye will be unique to you. Maybe you'll picture somewhat what the two guests sound like because you'll hear their sound of their voice. You'll guess their age, their nationality. You know that the two guys and the way they speak, you might be able to pick up on cues of their mannerisms and so on. But these are all 3D renditions of audio in your mind. And that is our goal because you know what, if we sit and we just do a Q&A with somebody in a, in, a, in a studio or even just sitting down at a cafe, we're missing out on so much. It's quite 2D in our rendition of that scene. If we can take it to the third dimension, then create that connection. And if you think about it, when you were a kid and your mom told you stories or the teacher told you stories, you didn't even see the story. They may have shown you pictures from the storybook, but how much you loved those stories because it wasn't just the, the tone of your mum's voice or acting out the big bad wolf or the grandma, the voices that made you laugh, made you giggle when your dad did the grandma's voice in the bed when she was really a wolf. All those stuff, that created emotion in us. And through the emotion, we created connection and we learned. So... To everybody who sees podcasts as some kind of how-to and some kind of delivery of information, I'd put it to you this way, that most information, if not 95% of information we absorb is through story. And stories are told in a format which is very, I suppose, standardized. Stories have a format. We've learned hundreds of stories through our life. They have a format. And it's through that format we learn, absorb information about the world. It goes back to the Maya Angelou quote again. 
And if you were tasked, for example, with having to tell the story and having to tell people about America, Midwest, and real people, how would you do that? Would you break it down and offer them the bullet points, the how-to, the information, the pure content? Or would you tell people a story? You see, if you want to create change, if you want to impress upon somebody information that's going to last forever, tell them a story. And that's why great leaders tell stories. You think about Steve Jobs standing up on stage and telling the story of the iPhone and how he used that to position the bad guys as being bad design or Microsoft or even in the old days, IBM against Apple. It was Big Brother and they were the resistance. They were about the individual against the machine. That story is not unique to Apple. That story of David and Goliath or the Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, whatever you take, going back from the Greek myths all the way up to the modern day Hollywood blockbusters, all follow a plot line. And in this case, it's the plot line of the underdog, the accidental hero who finds himself in the middle of events, thrust into the spotlight and armed with the information from the wise old man or the magical sword or whatever it may be. That archetype of story exists throughout time and it's repeated on and evolved, but the story is the same. And my point is, is that if you want to lead, if you want to create authority, if you want to create change, if you want to create emotional attachment, you don't have to invent new stories. You just need to find the archetype of the story in which you or your brand or your product is the hero. So using podcasts to tell stories is really about building upon thousands of years of human history rather than simply regurgitating information that's available on the internet. And if you do that, you're always going to lose. You're always going to lose to Google or YouTube because they're always going to get better rankings than you or somebody who spent their life gaming the YouTube search algorithm or SEO to get to the top. So that's what I feel the future for podcasts is in really evocative and emotional storytelling, using it to double down on what its strength is. Because podcasting is not about information and competing with information or competing with the machine, because we will lose that game. The machine will kick our ass. Okay. A machine might not be as good as a doctor when it comes to diagnosing diseases today. But you can bet in time it will be. Because if you look at AlphaGo or any of the things that people thought machines couldn't do, machines are now doing. Machines can write books. Machines can even create music. But it can't write a song. You see, this is what we have to focus on in podcasting is that people can do things that machines can never do. And that is that 
we as human beings have a history. We grew up. We experienced our first love. We experienced rejection. We experienced hurt and loss. We lost people in our lives. We were isolated. We were, you know, we had all of the shit that goes with growing up from age four to 94 that made us human beings and made our stories. We experienced pain and machines can never do that. But that is what makes us human. And therefore, if we want to compete in the machine age, we have to double down on what it means to be human. And that is to feel pain, to experience emotions, to experience all the negativity of what it is to be a human and to be vulnerable. And that is what people relate to now. Because I want to know that you have experienced loss in the same way you want to know that I have to be authentic in any way. You want to know that I'm a human being, that I've experienced all these things. Like I told you earlier, just out of out of interest, I told you that I have a son. You know, I have a 13-year-old son. I'm a human being. A machine can never have a son. Not yet. And I don't think for a long time. So because of that, we have the way forward in the machine era. And people are arguing that machines will replace us. And that is, I guess, the end game of the visionaries who talk about singularity is that eventually we'll get to a point where machines are better than human beings at everything. And therefore, what's the point of a human being? I'll tell you what the point of a human being is. And it's quite simple, is the fact we actually make mistakes. So look at every single love song. Now, what is the best-selling love song of all time? It has to be, and I'm sure somebody can Google this, go on to Wikipedia, She Loves You by The Beatles. Now, have a look at the lyrics of this song to get an understanding of what it means to be human. It's a story of love, obviously. It's a story of boy meets girl. And yet, it's also a story of loss. It's a story of failure. It's a story of making mistakes. If you look at the lyrics, scroll down, down to about verse four. She said, you hurt her so. She almost lost her mind. And now she says she knows you're not the hurting kind. Scroll down a little bit more. You know it's up to you. I think it's only fair. Pride can hurt you too. Apologize to her. And I would sing that, but my singing is terrible, so I'm going to spare you. I'm a lot better at doing the spoken word. That's my gift. So what does it teach us? It teaches us that, you know, here is a form of content a song which you've heard hundreds of times in your life, whether you wanted to or not. And if you like the song, then you're probably happy hearing it for 101 times, such as the power of music and the lyrics of the music as well. And the lyrics tell a story. They tell a story of love, loss, mistakes, growth. It's the journey we all experience in life. And that's what we love. And we love hearing it repeated again and again and again. And it's why every single movie probably follows a 
similar plot line, whether it's the Avengers or Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or Star Wars, they all follow an archetypal plot line because these stories, archetypes of stories are hardwired to in, into us, not just since when we were kids and our mom read us bedtime stories, but for thousands of years that we've been telling stories around campfires and human beings are the storytelling animal. What makes us human is our ability to tell stories. And telling stories isn't just relating information because that's where podcasters get it wrong. If we want to tell stories, we've got to stop relating information. We've got to tell people about the journey. We've got to convey the journey of emotions that make stories. And a key part of any journey, just as the heroes of the movies I talked about or any superhero, or any movie that you watched or book that you read, the hero always has a weakness, whether it's Superman or Lois Lane or Kryptonite or somebody's love for somebody else as is Batman makes them weak because he's, you know, it's always the woman that they capture and put into the 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 factory where she's going to get cut to bits by the laser machine or whatever it is. That's the weakness. This is what makes us human. And this is what we love. And you know what? There's been studies done on this. As a psychologist, I'm going to dig up some pop psychology here. So, you know, I welcome anybody who can pull me up on this and give me the exact citation. Very distant past of mine when I was into psychology as at an academic level studying artificial intelligence. A study was conducted and my my, I'll tell it as an apocryphal tale because my sources are very vague now. So they ran two studies, one study A, one condition group B. And in study group A, they asked students to rate people on the basis of, their f of how much they liked them. And really what they were testing was how we liked people based on fallibility. Fallibility basically means like our ability to make mistakes. If you're infallible, then you can never make a mistake. You're a machine. You're a, you're a computer because computers can never make mistakes deliberately or even accidentally. You know, they are programmed for perfection. So in this study, they asked actors to perform a task. And I think the task was something like it was a, it was a difficult task, like public speaking or singing or talking about themselves in very, um, you know, self-praising ways about their achievements and so on. I can't remember exactly what it is. It's something like that. Let's say it's public speaking. So they did a public speaking gig and then the actor came and sat with the student for a Q&A and the student asked them questions and after that, the student rated them. And in study group A, let's say they rated this person six out of 10, which basically was like, I, I, I think they're a really talented person, but yeah, I don't really gel with them. I don't really connect with them. And then they did this study group B, which was the same. The actor stood up, performed their act, their public speaking or whatever it was. And then they went and sat back down with the student in the same situation. Yet in this control, sorry, in condition B, the difference was that the actor deliberately knocked over a cup of coffee onto the interview table. It was all staged, obviously, to look like an accident. And then all the sort of the awkwardness of cleaning that up, you know, the patting down of the, all the, the spill and stuff like that. Sorry, 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 I didn't mean to do that. 
And then they did the interview. And then they asked the, the students to rate the actors, who they didn't know were actors, obviously, on a scale of one to ten. And interestingly, and I, I completely, you know, I'm doing this back of the envelope figures, their numbers went from six to nine. So what they found was that people rated the, the actors who made mistakes higher than those who didn't. So in this sort of, you know, the, the quadrant of relationships, there are those people who are really good at something and don't make mistakes. They're infallible. They're, you know, plastic. They are untouchable. They're celebrities. Then there are the people who are really good and make mistakes. These are the people that we identify with the most because they're on a journey like us and we can relate to the fact that, oh, look, they're human beings. They bleed just like us. They're made of flesh just like us. And, and you know, they screw up just like us. And we get that. And it's going like going back to those lyrics because those lyrics tell us that story again and again and again that to get to this final destination, which is a better world, whether that means getting the girl or having a better life or achieving something, you always go through that story narrative art, which is you're going to experience failure because you can ne never tell a movie or a story without that failure point as well. And let's start and finish almost where we started, I should say, which is the question is like, why are NPR crushing it right now in the US? Well, the reason why NPR are crushing it, and you can read in depth this in my article on LinkedIn, linkedin.com in Graham D. Brown. Go and check that out, article out if you want more data. NPR speaks of the pain that we all face. It speaks of the journey, the failure, the suffering, because that pain makes the success is much sweeter. How much more we like Steve Jobs in general when he suffered massive public failure. You know, he was popular at the beginning, but the fact that he was booted out of Apple and, you know, literally in biblical terms, wandered in the wilderness, lost, only to discover himself and come back through Pixar and then into Apple again, that whole journey is a hero narrative. It's the same. And that made him an amazing brand story in itself because he lived that in almost religious terms. And that's why he could command that kind of engagement that people felt with the Apple brand. And yet what other brands are trying to do is in that quadrant, they're trying to be the very good infallible brand, which just won't work. You become the plastic, inauthentic brand that we don't feel is us. It's too far out of our reach. It's too unrelatable. But this guy over here, Steve Jobs, yeah, I like him because he screwed up. He's amazing, but he screwed up. So it gives me hope as audience that I too can do something better with my life. It makes me feel better. And that is what it's all about. Going back to the Maya Angelou quote, sorry, that people will always forget what you told them, but they will always remember how you made them feel. And that is what NPR does. It speaks of the weaknesses and the failures, but ultimately it's about emotion. So when you 
record a podcast, when you market your brand, the challenge is, is what emotion are you creating in your audience? Because in the modern attention economy where your average teenager grows up seeing 170,000 marketing messages by their 17th birthday, being liked is not enough. You might as well be invisible. What matters is whether or not people love you. You know, you have critics, that's fine. Steve Jobs had critics, that's fine. But a lot of people loved him as well. And that's what mattered. It didn't matter that PC people didn't like or love Apple. All that it mattered was Apple people loved Apple. And that was enough. And that is how you build a tribe. That is how you plant a flag and allow people to rally around your flag by standing for something and creating an emotion. When you tell a story, just like all stories, now it's your brand story, it's your personal story, it's your podcast, it's the story of your guest. When you tell that story, you have to create an emotion. Because if you don't, it's like the song that is emotionless. It leaves you feeling empty. It's computer music. It's why... Computers can never write music that touches our heart. In time, a computer, AI, will write good music, but it will never touch our heart. And here's the reason why. is because you will look, when you like music and you want to know more about that person or whoever is behind that music, you go and find out about them and you read their story and you relate to them. And you hear about their struggles and you hear about their ideas and listen to the other music and listen to their music and so on. You realize that this person's suffered greatly or experienced many things in their lives and sharing that experience with you. And it's all about those strong emotions that a computer can never feel. And that's why when you hear a song for the first time, you might think it's okay, it's okay. But when you get to know who the artist is, it's very different. You feel attached you feel engaged just in the same way i might see your logo i might see your marketing message a few times but i don't feel engagement i only find engagement come to me when i see who that artist is that group behind that brand that company that team that ecosystem of people i get it now i get the story behind that brand and now i feel part of it and now i'm into this group and now i want to listen to every song that they release and now if I'm really into them, if I'm a fan, then I'm going to love everything that they do unquestionably. That is the kind of emotion that you want to create. A story like NPR, if you listen to This American Life, there are mixtures of stories in there, sometimes crazy, but always with emotion, sometimes angry, sometimes sad, sometimes happy, sometimes nostalgic. But it always creates a story. So if you are podcasting, if you are a brand telling your marketing message, if you're just telling your personal story, think about the emotion that you create. And this is ultimately where it comes down to. We are scared to share our emotions. We are scared to open up and be vulnerable to the public because we fear that we expose ourselves to the public and we will be shot down in flames. Just like when you ask that girl out at the disco, and I did this when I was, I don't know, 15. 
Remember asking a girl out or asking her for a dance in front of my mates and her laughing at me and just the ground opening up and me being swallowed up whole. You know, those memories last, <laughs> even for a 15-year-old kid. I can't say it's completely gone. It's there somewhere. But we are, we are somehow imprinted with this fear of exposing ourselves in public for fear of being criticized, fear of being judged, fear of other people's opinions of us and being shot down in the public sphere. And it makes us hard. It makes us hardened. It makes us build a wall around us and our brand. You know, look at how many marketing managers spend their lives behind computer screens rather than talking to customers. For the same reason. Because customers are fuzzy. Customers are somehow uncontrollable. So they're a bit weird. They say stuff that we don't like to hear. They have strange requests. Yet, sitting here behind my numbers, it's all easily controllable. Because that is where we have to get to. When we podcast, when we tell our stories, it's letting go. It's opening up. And just as Brene Brown said, dare to be vulnerable. Being vulnerable is not a sign of weakness. In the modern age where we increasingly push towards machine algorithms, vulnerability will increasingly become a sign of leadership and humanity. Because those who dare to be vulnerable in the public sphere are people who act out of courage. And courage is the basis of all leadership. We will rally round, whether we are consumers or whether we are technology partners or ecosystem partners, people who have courage to stand up and speak their mind, speak their heart without fear of criticism, even if it means they will be wrong. That word courage comes from the Latin word heart. And if you speak any Latin languages like French, it's cur, I believe, or in Spanish, it's corazón. So think about that, that why NPR is crushing it right now is because it speaks from the heart. And that's what people want. And maybe nobody stood up and says, look, I want more podcasts. I want more content that speaks from the heart. Nobody ever asked for that. But by planting a flag, consumers rallied round. And they realized that is what we wanted because that's what's missing from our lives. Real emotion and conversation and connection. The more we become digital, the more we will cry out for this kind of content. So don't, if you are a podcaster or a brand storyteller, edit yourselves to fit in with the naysayers who tell you that they don't have time or people don't listen to podcasts or it should be controlled, or it should be edited, or it should be questions beforehand. Don't listen to these people, because those people have built walls around their brands and their stories, and they live in that world, and that world is going away. That world will exist, but it becomes less important in our lives. What we're looking for are those people who can stand up and speak from the heart. That is where podcasts come in. I'll open it up to you. What do you think? How are you doing that? Is this something that you think that you could try with your brand. I'm interested to hear because this is, this is a journey we are all on. NPR have raised the bar for, my, for that.
so <laughs> just as I'm finishing up, just to show that I am human, I am screwing up. NPR has raised the bar for us. We're heading that way. We want to raise the bar for podcasting here in Asia too. We want to bring a bit of that NPR, this American life magic to the podcast that we do here. We want to speak from the heart and tell those stories. I'd love that you could join us on this journey. ATP.show for all my podcasts, which are more opinion pieces. But if you actually want to hear some of the work that I do on a daily basis, then go and check out our portfolio of podcasts. Go and check out pitchmedia.asia, pitchmedia.asia, if you want some examples of how we're trying to raise the bar here. We're not going to get it right all the time. It's a journey in ourselves. We're validating the process as we go along. But I'd love to hear your feedback. So you can ping me, graham at pitch.sg. I'll be back next week for more. Hi, this is Graham Brown. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast, powered by Pitch Media. Now, Asia Tech Podcast is voice of the Asian tech ecosystem. We regularly bring you updates from leading storytellers in Asia. If you want to get more, go to our SoundCloud channel. That is available at atp.show slash soundcloud, atp.show slash soundcloud. Follow the link. You'll find our SoundCloud channel. And if you're a podcast fanatic, go and subscribe to us and follow us on SoundCloud. We'd love to hear your feedback on our latest episodes.